Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, quick note, uh, if you're looking for some non-coronavirus-related content as you're listening at home, you can listen to the new season of Commons, which just launched. It is all about radicals, and the first episode is about a bonkers plot in which a bunch of neo-Nazis tried to take over a tropical island and almost got away with it. You can also listen to the second last episode of Cool Mules, which is out right now. Check that out, and if you haven't checked out Cool Mules yet, that's a good binge listen for you. How do you even begin to account for your losses? What is it now, like 30% of all the wealth in the stock markets? We don't even know how many jobs, how many lives, your freedom of mobility, of assembly. It's unreal. There's no comprehending this. Not yet. We don't have the data. We don't know what we get to keep. I'm not even willing to accept that anything has been lost because I'm still telling myself that we're going to get it all back. So yeah, I'm in denial, at least partially, because not everything is coming back. Going to the movies, is that coming back? I don't know, maybe that's a trivial question right now. Is that asinine when we're facing something as huge as this? I guess that depends on how important going to the movies is to you. Going to rep cinemas was very important to me. Going to Cinema du Parc in Montreal when I was a university student, watching old Hollywood, Billy Wilder, the film noir movies, Casablanca, watching Bergman and the neorealists and Fellini and, and, and Jim Jarmusch and David Lynch, all of that. I would not be the pompous ass that I am today if not for that education. I would probably be a slightly different kind of pompous ass. I don't know. Maybe I'd be really into wine or something. That's me. 
Maybe for you, it was going to a midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and realizing that you're not the only queer person in the world. Or hell, like maybe, and much more likely, it was going to a massive big box multiplex 3D IMAX and watching a franchise movie. Just because I have better taste than you does not mean that the movies mean any less to you than they do to me. And that kind of movie going, that might not be coming back either. Listen, we were planning an episode on the possible demise of neighborhood rep cinemas before the pandemic broke out. And the bad guy in that story, Cineplex, well, now they're the underdog too. So I'm going to talk to Eric Viette, who runs the lovely historic review cinema on Roncesvalles here in Toronto, about what streaming services and Cineplex were doing to make theaters like his suffer. According to the people at the Review and uh, at other rep cinemas around the country, Cineplex had been operating in an unlawful, anti-competitive way towards its small competitors. So I'm going to find out what that's all about. And I'm also going to talk to Jesse Wente, who is a writer and broadcaster, of course, a serious cinephile, the former director of film programs at the Tiff Bell Lightbox Theater, and currently the very first director of Canada's new Indigenous screen office. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Matthew McLeod, Alyssa Etzel, Paul Robinson, Colin Aloha, William Nippard, Adam Vasey, Wayne Corners, and Tori. Hey, my name is Tori, and I'm a community health nurse living and working in unceded Clayley Tanay territory, aka Prince George, BC. It's a very weird time to be working in healthcare right now, especially with an onslaught of never ending media. And Canada Land is doing a phenomenal job at shining a light and illuminating a path through it all for us. I find their consolidation and analysis of this information hugely valuable, and I am endlessly happy to give these guys my money. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Eric, I'm trying to figure out a nice way to ask this, but I, I can't think of one. Are you guys finished? No. I think a few cinemas have gone into this uh, in... I'd say some nicer economic times than we've seen in the last couple of years. The review has had a good couple of years. I know of a couple other cinemas that, uh, you know, just had uh, a really good time with uh, movies like Parasite and a couple other things. That being said, I, I don't know what we're going to be walking back into, like what the exhibition industry will look like and uh, could be forever changed. How long can you survive without revenue? 
I don't know that right now. Uh, we're still trying to sort of wrap our heads around what is owed and what, uh, what kind of money we are, are expecting from, uh, from people who owe us money. But overall, it's, it's just not a very good picture. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I know that things were looking dire even before this happened. Can we pretend that it's like a couple of months ago and tell me about the uncertain future of independent rep cinemas from a pre-COVID-19 perspective, if that's possible? We can go back to last fall when all of a sudden uh, the takeover of 20th Century Fox by Disney uh, meant that we all of a sudden were losing access to a pretty significant catalog of big money making titles, you know, showing Die Hard every December was um, was good money for places like The Review and, and every other rep cinema or second run cinema in, uh, in town. So we were we were going into that period with like, OK, this is probably going to hurt us a little bit. Other challenges being that the domination of Cineplex in uh, Canada has not been good for us. It's been really hard to get movies in a timely manner. Of course, as a second-run cinema, we know that we're getting the films a little further down the line, but there's been a growing discrepancy between, you know, a regular six- to eight-week window after the films open to literally several months, in fact, months after they're even available on VOD. And uh, as this this issue with Cineplex was raised, uh, we had the Paradise open in Toronto back in December, who, after a month of working in this system where you have to fight so long and wait so long to get movies, you know, the Paradise is like, wait, you, th- this is how it always is? And we're like, yeah, we're just kind of used to operating like this. So there, there was this call to arms recently about, like, you know, t- trying to uh, push changes in the industry in light of the, uh, the takeover of Cineplex by Cineworld. So just to break those uh, those points down, those stress points down a little bit, first you've got with Fox uh, being acquired by Disney and Disney wanting to fill its coffers for Disney Plus and have as much exclusive content. I don't know, did they put an end to or did they make it harder for an integral part of your business, which is just like licensing old movies from Fox? Now that those archives are under the auspices of Disney, they don't want to you know, just like take, take your money anymore when they could be sweetening the deal of Disney Plus. So that's one of the pressures. And then this coalition of rep house cinemas that you refer to pushing back against Cineplex. I think that the allegation that your your group made was that it was unlawful that Cineplex is acting in an anti-competitive manner in their dealings with distributors. They have so much market clout that they they were pressuring distributors to to not let them make their films available to second-run cinemas so that Cineplex could have the films to themselves, and that allegedly could be an anti-competitive measure that the the competition board might get involved with, and that was sort of the one of the big issues before coronavirus was was trying to get some support and try to turn that back. Is is that an accurate summary of of the situation? Yeah, one hundred percent. Cineplex is kind of fucked too, though, right? Oh, we're all in the same boat right now. And uh, the irony being that, of course, even back when the Fox Disney notification was made, Cineplex was affected by this as well. And one of the clarifications in terms of the Fox Disney thing is that if you are like the review is considered a first run, second run cinema. So we're showing new product. Those places that are simply repertory, we're still able to access that content. But you simply can't exist in this marketplace in Canada without showing a mix of the two. And that's how we've managed to survive. So Disney did give us a choice. You can either keep showing first run product or you can go exclusively rep. And it just said, you know, this is a business model that is decades old at this point. You all need to adapt and uh, give us an opportunity to, to survive in, uh, in this new marketplace. But that did not go anywhere. Yeah. 
Cineplex, uh, when this all popped up and, 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 and all of the rep theaters got together and issued this missive, they said in a statement to the CBC, hey, it's, it's, this isn't us. This is up to film distributors where they play their movies. Why are you blaming us for the fact that you can't get distributors to release their films to rep cinemas? What do you think, think of that? Let's just say that we all had a good laugh reading that. I've had some distributors actually tell me, I want to give you this movie, but I can't. And the reason is it starts with a C and it ends with an X. You know, and I still want to maintain my relationships with distributors for whatever industry we're going to be going back to after this. But yeah, it's the elephant in the room. And uh, if you look back at the 100 like, years plus of major distribution models that exist, uh, this, this isn't anything new as well. Like As this was happening and we were kind of gearing up and talking, I was going back into some old research and I did a lot of research for the longest time on the history of movie going in in the city, in Toronto specifically. But over the years, I, I, I would find an issue of like, oh, well, famous players, you know, uh, muscling uh, certain uh, smaller exhibitors from showing certain films. And like this was going on in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. There's even a quote that I posted to Twitter a couple of weeks ago of, from the 30s of someone saying, well, you, you wouldn't dare open a film on less famous okayed it. So this is, it's not a new issue. It's been going on for a very, very long time. But you also had a, there was a different breakdown in terms of competition. You know, Famous at the time did not have nearly 80% of the overall market the way the Cineplex does today with 75 plus percent. One of the other issues that really came up as well is Cineplex has, and to me, this is something that I take this on a more personal level because they control the exhibition market in the country, but they've also taken up distribution on the side. So companies like Cineplex Events, that will lock up certain films for a set period. And uh, like last year, there was an eight month period where we were not able to show any of the uh, Studio Ghibli films because Cineplex had sort of a, not so much a moratorium on them, but as long as a, a Cineplex cinema nearby was showing that film, we were not able to show it. And that could mean merely showing it at 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday and grossing $25. And this is not a specific example, uh, just sort of theoretical thing. That would keep it from coming to a cinema like The Review. You bring up history and film history, and I, I can't help but think of the, it's kind of like a textbook antitrust case when the, the big studios and the studio system also owned the theaters. And basically they just had a stranglehold on the entire system and they could determine what, what a hit was and who could get into the business at all. And the government actually came and broke it up. I think the Paramount Decree itself is one of the things that has kept small businesses like ours in existence since that time. And it's, it's been very good overall for business. But of course, with all of that, it's just kind of thrown to the wind now with the vertical integration that we've seen with the streaming platforms over the last couple of years. Like, you know, Disney is not allowed to technically own its own movie theaters, but they've launched their own streaming service. And, you know, so it has happened all over again. And uh, yeah, I don't know what industry we're going to be returning to in, say, this all you know, everything goes back to normal in a month, two months, whatever. All of the studios in the meantime, they have poured millions into certain movies. They need to release them one way or another. So they're going straight to VOD platforms with certain films like uh, Invisible Man will be available to rent on VOD on Friday. And I don't blame them for doing that, but um, it is absolutely going to destabilize the industry. Well, it seems like it was already on a bad course for theaters. This is like just accelerating the speed on that process. I think a lot of people listening to this might wonder, like, you know, what's the big deal? If you think of uh, Rep House Cinema as just like a place to watch a Hollywood release a month later or so for cheaper, if that's what you think of second-run theaters, you may have missed out on 
this kind of renaissance that we were talking about earlier. I'll try to summarize this. You tell me if I'm giving this its proper due. It seems to me like a lot of these theaters that are historical old theaters, that there's not like 10 screens, there's one screen. They're important buildings. They're kind of gorgeous. They've got a lot of history and neighborhoods are figuring out what do we do with them. And there have been a lot of young and really engaged programmers like yourself who I think have been realizing that what is in short supply and the very special thing that you have and that's so scant these days is a community meeting place for cultural events. And with everybody on screens all the time at home and the isolation that preceded the uh, coronavirus crisis, what a wonderful opportunity to have like Saturday morning cartoons with with all you can eat sugary cereal for kids, special programming where you've got people like, you know, drunk feminist films or like, you know, like getting funny people to come and do commentary on it. You and I worked together on a couple of events, Canada Land of the Movies. So full disclosure, we we, we briefly had a working relationship where we would like uh, pick movies about journalism and have journalists come and talk about their favorite movies about journalism and then screen the movie. And, and you know, on, on that note, that was actually a, a, a real point of pride for that first screening, especially that we did was, you know, I had just recently taken over as programming director at the review, but that was sort of like proof of this model that can, that can work and that uh, has just maintained its success over the last couple of years and getting to work on these, programs with not just the programmer but the entire creative team that surrounds this and you know at the same time that from a there's the community the cultural but also the economic impact that this has had like the review the royal you know newly the paradise all of these cinemas all the way up to the rio in vancouver by doing all of this programming it's it's also created a bit of a, a financial ecosystem for artists and programmers it's not paying their bills you know we're all working several jobs but there's a little bit coming to everybody and even if faced with the decision on saturday of we need to close our doors i obviously thinking about my team but also how things have changed obviously even in a couple of days on saturday morning as this decision was looming i was wondering about the impact that you know you've got a place like the review that can accommodate up to 220 people well if you've got that many people coming to the neighborhood on a saturday night to see a movie chances are they're going next door for a beer they're going to grab a bite to eat and so there is there is an economy driver to the neighborhood as well that it was kind of weighing heavily as, you know, this this is going to bring fewer people into our neighborhoods as well. But at this point, it looks like everything is shut down. So, But I, I, I am hoping that this does open government and businesses' eyes in terms of the importance of these spaces and the importance of, you know, I know at the end of the day, we're just showing movies, but it's, it's, it's important. Thanks, Eric. Hey, have you uh, streamed any good movies lately? Uh, all of uh, Chaplin's films are on Criterion Channel. Uh, on Saturday night, after this big discussion, after you know deciding to shut down the cinema, I was like, I need to watch a Chaplin movie, but I want to I want to watch a really funny one. And I, I went and watched uh, The Circuits from 1928, which is just laugh out loud, unrelentingly, the funniest of his films. So let's just let's just laugh. I called on Universal and uh, Warner Brothers to put all the Marx Brothers movies on streaming platforms tomorrow, and I I hope they listen to me. Oh, that would be a bomb. That would be wonderful. We really need that right now. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you, Jesse. Okay, so again, that was Eric Vayette, the Programming Director at the Review Cinema here in Toronto. Now here is my conversation with Jesse Wente, who is the Director of Canada's Indigenous Screen Office. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. I just spoke to a guy who runs a rep theater, and I heard a bit about, from that perspective, what the concerns are. 
I'm wondering if we can't go a bit wider because really the whole industry might never be the same after this. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would say this is the largest threat to the movie business maybe ever. And and we should maybe couch that in that I don't think movies are going away, but I do think there's the potential for how we have traditionally seen movies, consumed them, interacted with them, and maybe even how the business sort of operates. I think that is what's under threat. I think cinema, you know, they've been foretelling the demise of cinema for decades, but never have we really had this confluence of events at the same time, both in terms of the pandemic, but also the general upheaval of the industry that is it's been going through for the last few years. Those combined, I think, present a threat that we have not seen before. And I think, um, you know, you're saying you talk to someone in the independent cinema space. I mean, it's the movie theaters that are really the most under threat in this moment, not necessarily movies themselves. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times because there's so much wonderful stuff to see and pick your poison. Like if you loved art house stuff, you can watch, you know, Roma, like some of the best work. If, if you're a, a, a nerd like, uh, you know, I was in high school and I understand you are to this day and you like genre stuff. I mean, it's just uh, incredible. Everything you could want adapted is adapted at the highest budget point. It's all happening. But if movies are us getting together in a theater to watch a movie, you're basically talking about, I mean, even before this happened, it was really just getting like corporatized to the point where it was big franchises only and everything else was something that you would watch maybe on your phone or, or on a laptop in bed or something. I mean, it, it feels like the, the TVification of movies was well underway. It certainly was, you know, aided and abetted by a fairly slow moving theatrical industry that has been, a, you know, slow to adapt to changing consumer behavior and aided and abetted by an industry that has gone through enormous consolidation, both in terms of the producers, you know, the studios and how they distribute the content, but also, quite frankly, on the ideas side and what is valued when it comes to this content. That has also become constricted, at least on the big budget studio level. Mm -hmm. Where I would maybe maybe disagree with you a bit, Jesse, is that I actually think pre-pandemic, the niche stuff was actually the more nimble and maybe where people would were still willing to gather. You know, I I ran an independent movie theater in Toronto for many years, and our attendance on the theatrical side, so new releases, was a, a challenge and really up and down, like you would expect in any movie theater. Our attendance or our business on older titles, what you would call rep cinema or cult movies, or, you know, old movies, however you want to phrase it. But that business only ever grew while I was running that theater. It tracked consistently upwards. Huh. There really was an opportunity there and a place for those venues to not just exist, but I honestly believe there was an opportunity going forward for them to thrive, you know, by offering a reason for people to go out because I don't, I think people still want to go out. And even after this pandemic, people will still maybe more so want to go out and gather. And especially around those things that are special, you know, yeah, maybe you can, you know, you want to go see Avengers, but reality is Avengers 
the movie aided by a communal gathering? I'm not so sure. But seeing like, um, I don't know, Breathless, that is, I think, aided by the idea of gathering. I do worry that this pandemic is going to disrupt that opportunity. Because you have to remember, from our generation, and certainly for those folks older than us, and maybe even for you know people a decade younger than us, that's about the tipping point. For those older generations, our first experiences of movies was in a theater. We are still very much identified with the idea of going to a theater to watch a movie. And so I think there was a, a fairly good window of, say, 20, 30 years where the theatrical business was going to be maybe in steady decline, but there was an opportunity to find niche, and there was still a lot of bit, a population for whom going to the movie theater was how they sort of understood movie consumption. When you get to the generation of, say, my kids, that's over. Yes, they go to movie theaters, but literally right now when we're on the phone, they're up watching YouTube. So I think there was a, a, a sort of a horizon for when the theatrical business was going to be in real danger. It feels like this pandemic has, has made that horizon suddenly a lot closer than it was honestly just like two weeks ago. Yeah. That does concern me just for the health of the industry, but but maybe more importantly, the health of the the culture and the art form itself. You bring up something that I got to investigate a little bit, which is like we have some specific generational POV here. And it's not just us saying, oh, for me, it means going to the cinema, going to the theater. We kind of are like asserting like that's the best version of this for everybody. And we need to keep that alive and we need to kind of like keep the lighthouse lit so that there's a future for communal theater going. Maybe that's just our weird fetish. And maybe this crisis is like an opportunity to investigate that. Like, you know, TIFF built the Bell Lightbox Theater, but they also built like a lifestyle brand around the condos of TIFF and the festival itself. And we're hearing that there were all kinds of struggles. They wanted to program art house stuff, but um, Canadian uh, filmmakers were having the just the hardest time ever getting in there as they needed to kind of alter the mix to actually turn a buck. We have this hang up in the Canadian cultural grant system. Like so much is pegged on getting Canadian films into Canadian cinemas. And it's almost like blind to like, well, how are people actually watching stories? You know, you run the Indigenous screen office. It strikes me that it's of paramount importance that Indigenous people are telling their stories on screens, that we have access to that, that Indigenous people are watching their own stories on screens, and that everybody has the opportunity to watch those stories on screens. But I don't know that I care so much that that's in the theater like, is there a possibility that we were tilting at windmills and just trying to make that happen when every force was pushing that out of existence or just to a margin for fetishists like you and I who, you know, want to go out and do that? But that's sort of our problem. And maybe just getting this stuff on any screen will become the issue going forward. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack <laughs> in that question. Sorry. Jesse. Yeah. Um, because I think there's a, a bunch of angles that I would take. So first from... You know, I'll put my uh, cinema historian hat on and say that, sure, we could be claimed to be tilting at windmills, but I also will tell you that seeing a movie projected on screen that was made to be seen that way is still a fundamental thing of viewing the art. Like, would you, Jesse, say that you have viewed the Mona Lisa if you've seen it on your computer as opposed to standing in front of it? 
<laughs> I wouldn't, but I got to tell you, movies used to be like just tawdry, scurrilous, you know, movie theaters where the moral police were after them. Now it's the Mona Lisa, and now we're the old fogies trying to preserve. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, I mean, they, they certainly have that that element, but I think movies weren't often, not always considered art. And I think they are now, and they should have always been. And, you know, for those of us in that have, uh, are the real geeks of this culture, we would compare it because the, you know, and movies have always dealt in copying, right? Because the, the print you see in a movie theater is not the actual negative shot from the film. So you can't ever actually get to see the, the Mona Lisa of a movie, if you will. You can't ever view the original thing that the artist made. That's it. You're not, you're not uh, analyzing the brush strokes. Like you want to see it big. It was meant to be seen on a, you know, but some of these screens at home are pretty damn big and watching something on 4k. It used to be, Oh, on, on VHS, you're not getting the full resolution of the 35 millimeter print. You kind of are getting the full picture now. And, 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 you know, yeah, but you're not because you know, 4k is an approximation of 35 millimeter resolution, but it's an imperfect approximation. And I'll tell you, from a consumer side, yeah, we can discuss whether it's the same experience. From the artist side, a lot of the great movie filmmakers in the world would argue you have not seen their movie unless you've seen it on a screen in a theater. So, like, some of this is about how the artists perceive their own art and how, how they would like you to view it. And I think there are some movies, comedies, horror movies, that simply work better with an audience than they do when you're sitting alone. And I say that as someone who's also curated for film festivals where you're often watching, say, a comedy by yourself. And there's a difference between how it works when you're alone versus how it works with an, an audience. So I think there's nuances to that sort of baseline uh, argument. No, there's no, there's no nuances. There's no nuances. I'm with you. It's way better to see it in the theater. Like, of course it is. It's way better. But I'm, I will also allow that for 2020 sensibilities and for content being made you know, stuff being made now, the artists also view it much more fluidly than they did in the past, right? They understand that their shows might be more viewed on a streaming service on a phone than they will be in the big screen. Not all artists, and this is especially true for Indigenous artists, aspire to the movie theater because for a lot of Indigenous artists, there are no movie theaters in their community. Right. So right. why would they aspire to a, a, a distribution format that their community can't even access? Yeah. And so from a, the screen office's point of view, we are sort of screen agnostic in terms of what we approach. We're storytelling and talent-driven and sovereignty-driven, first and foremost. If the content that people want to create, the stories they want to tell, they want to tell on a movie screen, on a TV screen, as an app, or as in a video game, I sort of don't care. And Jesse, I'm comfortable with the fact that you and I are increasingly dinosaurs, and that you know our wants and dreams will be nothing but fuel for future generations, and I'm totally fine with that. There's a part of me, the historian part of me, that wants to preserve and acknowledge that there's a certain cinematic experience and a certain cinematic expression that is exclusive to seeing it on a big screen that is simply not replicable at home. With this, I agree. And our sliver of a minority of people who uh, who are adherents and, and uh, keepers of the flame can weep, and, and maybe there's a future of some kind. 
the wider story is, and let's talk about this, what is going to be left? Like, production has halted. We're trying to turn Thunder Bay into a TV show. They were supposed to shoot something uh, for a docuseries. That got canceled or, or indefinitely uh, suspended. Yep. So not only are releases being held back, the entire Hollywood slate is either just going straight to streaming or they're just not putting it out. And then production is ground to a halt. And Cineplex was already in dire straits. Forget the rep houses. The big corporate overlord that they hated is also in tough shape. Mm-hmm. And so what's left? What's it going to be? The short answer, of course, is we don't know because I don't think we know where this ends in terms of the pandemic and what that actually looks like. If everything is seems settled and we're all fine, say, in June versus everything is all settled and fine in December. You know, there's there's different answers to that question. So I'll take it from both sides. So I'll start with the production side. So this is a big concern, you know, that the productions are delayed or shutting down. I can tell you that earlier today, I was on the phone with the folks in charge, I, I guess is how I would put it, of the industry here in Canada. And this is foremost in our minds. You know, how do we maintain some semblance of the production schedule or slate? How do we defer some of those, you know, because the system is not built for this, right? So like, you know, when you give money to a production, there's an expectation that there's a timeline attached to that money. Mm -hmm. So everyone's talking about how we defer those things, how we extend year over year, which is uh, somewhat unusual, uh, how we support workers that are finding themselves out of contracts or out of a regular paycheck because they've had their productions postponed or delayed or, or outright canceled. So the some of the decision makers in this industry in Canada are all working together. We're all communicating right now, almost on a daily basis to talk through how best to address the economic and the cultural impacts of what this pandemic is going to mean to our sector. So we don't have the answer yet because I think we're still waiting to understand how this unfolds, but people are absolutely having that conversation. And I expect that there will be a return to some semblance of normalcy at some point. And the drive for content is unlikely to be lessened because of this pandemic. It's actually more likely to be increased that because of the habits that may form over an extended isolation or social distancing period, I don't think it'll mean less TV shows are going to get made or less movies are going to get made. I suspect it'll mean more will get made on the sort of other side of it. So the exhibition side where we watch these things, this may be prove a tipping point because let's be honest, Jesse, if if the studios are going to go the direct to consumer route and say, we're going to skip theatrical movie theaters altogether. And we're just going to let you stream it. The ones that are going to be most successful for that are movies like Avengers and like Disney movies, because the studios will invariably take less money from a streaming purchase than they do from a theatrical ticket buy, right? But if they view that as the way to actually get to the audience, the mass market stuff is the stuff that's going to make the most off that. More niche stuff is going to struggle because you need that, that higher theatrical split. And we haven't yet seen that, right? I think if Disney decides to release, say, Mulan straight to consumer, that's the end. You know, I think that's when you see the real collapse of the theatrical industry. Because even in a place like Canada, Disney occupies the majority of the theatrical screenplays. One studio occupies more of it than anyone else. And so if they were to start doing that, that's probably the death toll for even a place like Cineplex, because it's 
movie businesses, I used to have this joke when I was running a movie theater. Movie theaters are a great way to lose money. They are very romantic, but as a business, they're really tough because you know, if you're Cineplex, you're actually more in the food service industry. Yeah, than sure. Because you, you take more money, you make more revenue off the sales of popcorn than you do from the ticket. I got to tell you, I'm even more pessimistic than you. For you, the doomsday scenario is that they go to the trouble of making a big blockbuster movie like Mulan and then going direct to consumer, skipping the theaters. You said it at the beginning, Jesse, your kids and mine, they don't care if they're watching some incredibly considered high budget piece of cinema or some jackass opening Pokemon cards. So to me, it's like, uh, what kind of content is going to be created in this time when production has halted and demand is high. This is like going to be the birth of the YouTuber as, as the mainstream Hollywood, like 30 years from now, the, 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 this conversation will be about, uh, you know, how do we properly archive those wonderful early forget, you know, Charlie Chaplin. It'll be, you know, Oh, w w when I was a kid, I used to watch people play video games on YouTube and it meant something. You might be right. Uh, you might be right. I guess my kids are happy to watch YouTube. If I were to tell them that the next season of Mandalorian was available, they would be down here in two seconds. You know, I think there's still some entertainment that simply has to be produced by studios because that's who can take on the burden of the cost of production. I don't think, you know, in a world where Marvel movies and Star Wars are the biggest entertainments maybe of all time, and we're not talking ancient history. They were released, you know, a couple months ago. I don't think the appetite for those things are going away anytime soon. And in fact, I think the fact that some of those things are now available on a streaming service like The Mandalorian, like all the Marvel TV shows, I think that has only escalated the need for TV shows to be produced at a higher cost so they can compete and look and operate more like um, movies. So I, I don't think that that will be the eventuality now. If a year from now, you and I have a conversation and we're still social isolating ourselves and that, you know, who knows what we're talking about because the whole world will be <laughs> dramatically changed. But, you know, if we can imagine this ending on some sort of reasonable or imaginable timeline, I don't think the desire for Avengers is going to weigh. You know, my, my son's watching YouTube, but he's mostly watching kids play video games that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. Right, right. You know, so like it's, I don't think that this will create a culture of kids looking for uh, Z-grade productions. I think this will create a generation of kids more nimble and more open to viewing content of all kinds on all sorts of different platforms. But I think Star Wars is always going to be Star Wars. Yeah, no, they know the good stuff. Then You know, there's, there's passing time and then there's the stuff they love. And hey, let's be a little bit hopeful, Jesse. Like if we look back, just to put on my historian ad again, at say the last great pandemic, and I will put aside HIV for a second and look to say the Spanish flu in mm -hmm. 1918, that came at a moment when movie theaters were hugely popular. You know, movies were big time. Silent film was, you know, we would have had dozens of uh, screening houses in a place like Toronto for silent film. The flu came. And if you look at what happened afterwards, movies only became bigger. And even during the, the Depression, movies were a cheap entertainment for people. Yeah. And so there is some hope that in previous pandemics, we've actually seen the movie business. We can't speak necessarily to the TV business because it didn't exist then. But we saw movie business only increase afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's 
the possibility that when we return to normalcy, people will actually engage in the things that they sort of took for granted previously and maybe engage with them more vigorously. And frankly, if people like you and I care about going to a movie theater, care about any of these activities, going to a ball game, we're going to have to do those things more frequently to help those businesses recover and to show that these are still businesses and there still is an audience. Well, I'll try to stay hopeful. I have every reason to be hopeful because I'm, I'm launching a YouTube channel where I'm going to do hand sanitizer unboxing videos. So the future's looking good for me. <laughs> well, just make sure you wash your hands before you touch the box. <laughs> Jesse Wente, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, that's your Canada Land episode. Um, give me an email if you would like to. I'll read it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. Listen, we have an Instagram account. I didn't know that we needed an Instagram account. As an audio person, I'm naturally suspicious of the seductive powers of uh, visual imagery and uh, don't feel like anybody needs to see my face. And so I resisted Instagram, but then my staff said, no, we actually need to be on this platform and there's interesting things we can do with it. And uh, shut my mouth, they proved me wrong. Our Instagram is actually pretty fantastic, Canada Land Show. Check it out, there's good stuff there. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Once again, new season of Commons, terrifically entertaining and interesting. New episode of Cool Mules out this week. We are publishing throughout all of this. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton and Jordan Cornish. Kasia Mihailovich is the senior producer of Canada Land. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you liked this podcast, if you like any of our podcasts, if you appreciate our existence, support us. It's never been easier and you can do it in Canadian dollars. Just look at the link in your show notes, the episode notes, click on it, and in minutes, bloop, you'll get a premium ad-free feed of Canada Land for five bucks a month. Or if you're listening on a desktop, go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Please do so. We really could use your support. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.